Let's give our uh, attentive listening to the reading of God's holy word. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word and we ask Um, along with the gift of your word, you would give us the gift of wisdom and understanding and uh, spiritual insight to see the things that uh, without your help, we just can't see. Um, And help us to see not only its truthfulness, but um, how it it really has the power uh, to change us into your image uh, so that we may live uh, according to your will, according to your purpose um, and your design. So Lord, reveal these things to us. Uh, we ask for your help and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue the, the vision here um, of the final judgment that we started in chapter 14. And basically, the judgment that was described uh, in verses 6 to 13 is now realized. That's what verses 14 and 20 is showing us. It's taking place. And it's uh, brought by mainly executed by this character named the Son of Man, which is, as we will see, is Christ. Now, before we jump into this, I want to point this out, that whenever we see passages like this, uh, we have to acknowledge that this is here at least because, by God's design, um, the final judgment and hell are doctrines, things that God wants us to think about all the time no Uh, but if if this never is never talked about um and and you've never had a conversation like this with your with your spouse what so what are your thoughts on hell and god's eternal judgment and if, if it never comes up right that's not right either because the bible uh talks about it so it's it's helpful to strike the right balance. When you try to strike the right balance, it's helpful to just go down the books of the Bible, even the unpopular ones, and, and address the chapters and verses that, that don't always make it on, on Etsy for the wall art or uh, on the mug you want to buy for your parents or um, Christian t-shirts or on Instagram uh, so that our Christian thought life is formed not just digitally but scripturally. And, and you're actually, you have a balanced diet so that your, your thought life um, and Christian life is actually shaped according to how God wants to shape you. 
So having said that, let's be attentive to this vision and let's really try to understand it, the symbols, metaphors, allusions. And um, if we need to, let's wrestle with it, right? address, address the concerns that are commonly raised. And finally, let's try to apply it. Okay, apply it and really claim the benefits of this because if it wasn't beneficial for us, God wouldn't have put it here. Right? All scripture is God-breathed and it's beneficial for us. That's why this is here. So let's see how this could benefit us. Three things I want to show you from this vision of God's judgment. How God's judgment first brings us hope for our future. Hope for our future. Second, how God's judgment brings us comfort. Comfort for our past and and present and the future. Um, Third, how God's judgment or this vision of God's judgment brings us spiritual fruits for the here and now. Okay, so hope for our future, comfort for always, spiritual fruits for the here and now, all right? So point number one, hope, hope for our future. Um, First, here's what we see in verse 14. Uh, One like a son of man seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And this is a direct reference and allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where it describes the Son of Man coming with clouds. He is the Ancient of Days. He's the Lord God, the King of Kings. Same imagery in Matthew 24, where Jesus very explicitly refers to himself as the Son of Man, who will come to judge, yes, but also to redeem. To redeem and to judge. So um, the Son of Man here is clearly referring to Jesus, the Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who is both the Redeemer and the Judge of the world. And that's represented in the golden crown, his sharp sickle, which is a symbol of judgment and authority. And then in verse 15, um, an angel appears out of the temple, meaning sent from the divine throne, uh, which is where uh, commonly understood is where the Heavenly Father is, with this divine message. Right? Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. The, the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And then in verse 16, the, the Son of Man actually begins to reap. Right? So a couple things to note here. For one, uh, the earth fully ripe. Okay? Uh, that's a metaphor for the end of the age, signifying that time for the final accounting of all things has come, right? It's a timing language that, that this is referring to. It's fully ripe. Second thing is, okay, you have to make note of this. When it is time, Jesus is gonna keep it. Okay? He's gonna do what he said he will do at that time, okay? He does not say, I'm having second thoughts. Uh, when, when the Heavenly Father says, now is the time, the Son acts. And that means he's going to redeem all there is to redeem, judge all there is left to judge. And I say left to judge because a lot of the judgment upon sinners he already took upon himself on the cross. So both uh, his redemption and his judgment are at hand. That's the metaphor of the harvest. And if you think about harvest and reaping, right, these are positive things. Right? These are things we're celebrating. It's a good thing when you have things to, to reap. So the implication here is, His judgment, the judgment of the Son of Man is something you can look forward to. Okay, it's something you can hope in. Especially as fallen human beings living in a desperately fallen world, right? A world where you simply have to 
pay a little bit of attention, and, and you will start saying immediately, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things are desperately wrong in this world. This gives us hope in such a world. The king of the universe will return. And by his infinite wisdom and power, he will right every wrong. Um, and this judicial act is going to be all-inclusive. He's going to include restoring all the losses suffered by the innocent, redeeming all the suffering brought on by the broken, brokenness of sin, and it certainly includes repairing injustices that, that was perpetrated on this side of heaven. This gives us hope that every wrong will be made right. Every crooked line made straight. And that's the unique hope that the Son of Man brings to us. Here's an interesting sort of side note to hopefully add to this point. There's a, there's a philosopher named Michael Peterson, and in presenting uh, an atheistic argument for uh, the, the non-existence of God, he's arguing against the existence of God, he wrote this, quote, Something is dreadfully wrong with our world. An earthquake kills hundreds in Peru. A pancreatic cancer patient suffers prolonged, excruciating pain and dies. A pit bull attacks a two-year-old child, killing him. Countless multitudes suffer the ravages of war in Somalia. A crazed cult leader pushes 85 people to their deaths in Waco, Texas. Millions starve and die in North Korea as famine ravages the land. Horrible things of all kinds happen in our world, and that has been the story since the dawn of civilization. Therefore, there is no God. That's his argument. Um, along the same lines, uh, a philosopher named Hans Kung, he called the problem of evil, therefore, the rock of atheism. It's, the, it's, it's where many atheists build their case against God upon. It's the rock of atheism. Now, there are two responses to this for those of us who are believers. One, uh, we have to ask, how do we know that anything is actually, dreadfully wrong with our world to begin with? On what basis do we say anything in this world is wrong if nature is simply all there is? Then even the things that you feel are wrong are just part of nature, aren't they? Right? Nothing's wrong. It's all natural. Everything is 100% organic. Why protest that? Let it be, let it go should be the secular model in a godless universe. Everything is just the way they're supposed to be, nature. But if you want to, if you want to rage against the evil and the darkness and the unrighteousness of the world, all the immorality, well, you need a moral universe created by a moral God who personally holds people to account, right? So the problem of evil is not really atheism's rock that helps build it. It actually crushes it, defeats it, because if you acknowledge an absolute evil, you have to acknowledge an absolute good, and that's God. Um, secondly, more, maybe more importantly, a lot of people who raise this problem of evil never quite articulate the end of the biblical story. <laughs> The, the end of the biblical story that God authored doesn't end with things that are desperately wrong, remaining wrong, but ends with the Son of Man, seated on the cloud, wearing a golden crown and a sharp sickle in his hand and making all things right again. That's the end of the story. 
He will restore every wrongful loss, wipe away every tear, remove every suffering. He will rectify every injustice, redeem, resurrect, renew His people who are now reborn into the image of His Son. That's the end. And therefore, we look at the coming final judgment of God, of the Son of Man, and we look forward with hope. Because um, the Son of Man just doesn't just come with His judgment, He comes with His redemption as well. And the world needs, we need both. His power to redeem His people and His power to judge and therefore renew the world. Therefore, this is about harvest and about reaping and about celebration and about looking forward to what's ahead. Jesus will return, and he will not only redeem, but also judge. Not only judge, but also redeem. We need both. Uh, Tim Keller put it, I think, really well when he said, if there is no day of judgment to account for all the wrongs of the world that people have gotten away with especially, what hope is there for the world? There is none. There is no justice. There is morality is meaningless. But if there is a day of judgment, right, that may deal with the, the problem of morality, but... What hope is there for me? Wouldn't I be judged as well? And he says, Jesus, the Son of Man, is our answer to both questions. Okay. He brings judgment, yes, but also redemption. He brings redemption, but also judgment. And so this is good news. This is hope for both us and for our world. We need both. The, the redeeming power of Christ and the judging, judicial power of Christ. This is hope for our future. All right, second, uh, God's judgment brings us a comfort. A comfort. Verse 17, uh, there's another angel that comes out of the temple. He, he has a sharp sickle as well. In verse 18, there's another angel that com comes from the altar, and the angel has authority over the fire, right? So things are getting more intense, and there's a loud voice saying, Put in your sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Its grapes are ripe. And the angel with the sickle does that. And then he, he throws, throws it and gathers them and gathers them into a great wine press of the wrath of God, it says. And then what do they do with that? Verse 20. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed. Blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Okay. This is a... Uh, intentionally hyperbolic, shocking description of the total, utter defeat that all of God's enemies will suffer in the end, right? Who are God's enemies? Right? We've been looking at some of them, right? The first beast, the second beast, the, the dragon, the false prophet, right? Um, all those who also worship them and follow them and persecute uh, God's people. They will be taken out of the city and they'll be trodden. In chapter 11, uh, the church is described as a holy city that was trampled upon by the wicked. Here, it's the wicked who are being trampled upon. Except the consequences of the trampling in chapter 14 is way worse, way more graphic and shocking than the one in ver uh, chapter 11. Right? Um, it says... Blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle. That's as tall as me. For 1,600 stadia. 
And uh, commentators note that's about the length of Israel, the whole of Israel. So that gives the readers, the first audience, some context to imagine, to envision all of, all of Israel filled with blood up to a horse's bridle is the consequence of God's enemies being crushed and defeated. All right, so make no mistake about it. This is a shockingly violent image. The plainest meaning of this is when God's justice comes in fullness against all the wickedness and all the evil throughout all of history, it will be a shocker. It's not something you can cozy up to. In a sense, right, this is meant to be just a, a vision of that, almost like a, a little painting of it. And that's overwhelming for us enough. It's not even the, the real thing. It's just a, it's a portrayal of it, and it's already overwhelming to us. That's how great God's wrath will be upon all evil. Uh, that's how serious he is when he says, uh, don't take vengeance because vengeance belongs to me. God is, we worship a very, very big God. Um, what's also help, uh, helpful, here's the number 1,600 stadia, that doesn't just mean 200 miles that cover the length of Israel, but also it's 40 squared, and 40 is a, uh, a number that symbolizes judgment, 40 days of rain, 40 years in the wilderness, but this is 40 squared. Uh, it's meant to communicate just how lengthy, how, how long, not only the, the judgment of God is, but the evil of humanity is, that warrants that kind of judgment. In Joel chapter three, there's a prophecy that says this, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, for the winepress is full, for their wickedness is great. Okay, Revelation 14 is a fulfillment of Joel 3. And what this basically means is the judgment of God is coming, and it's coming like, like a shocker. Why? It doesn't say because God's anger is great. Their wickedness is great. When their great wickedness finally meets its match, Revelation 14 is what you see all the wars, all the violence, all the injustice, all the abuse, all the deaths, all the conflict and strife that have only gotten more and more severe over the course of human history, when God crushes it all and brings it all to a finale, what you see is the vision in Revelation 14. And I said this point is about how comforting this is. <laughs> how, is this, how is this comforting uh, to us? Well, I think we, well, the first thing we have to do immediately is acknowledge that to those, to those who are less privileged than us and less sheltered from all the evils in the world than us, to them, this actually is a great comfort. Our lack of taking comfort in this, our lack of celebration of this, and, and perhaps our sort of finding it more unpleasant, says more about how protected we are from the evils around the world, how sheltered we are, than about how harsh God is. 
Because if you and I were actually the persecuted Christians in North Korea, Revelation 14 is what we pray for every day. If you and I were the, the Catholics who were, who were murdered just recently brutally in Africa, Revelation 14 is what we long for every day. Uh, the reason why we don't find this as comforting is because uh, we're privileged. We're in a bubble. Near the, I was just re-watching Saving Private Ryan recently, and um, near the end of that movie, as Captain Miller is bleeding out and uh, the, the German soldiers are advancing and, and they're fighting there across the bridge, um, the American soldiers are all but defeated, right? Our protagonist is dying. But out of nowhere, right, uh, these American ally uh, fighter planes come and just completely destroy the German tanks, blows them up into pieces, and saves the day, right? The Nazis are defeated. And um, Private Ryan runs over to Captain Miller and says to him, look, they're tank busters, P-51s. They've come to our rescue. And Captain Miller, as if to give Ryan an even better description of what those are, he says to him, they're angels on our shoulders. These tank-busting, enemy-destroying, people-killing fighter planes are angels on our shoulders. How can he say that? He can say that because he's in the context of World War II, and we're not, right? These fighter planes that are sources of great wrath and judgment, and yet at the same time sources of such great comfort for those who are facing this insurmountable enemy. This, this source of wrath, this sharp weapon that brings wars to end and brings soldiers home. You got to be in the context of a battle, a fierce battle to understand the comfort of this. And you know, the, the, the irony is we are in the thick of that battle uh, if we have eyes to see it. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil that wage war against our hearts, our hearts. And that's what we've been looking at throughout the book of Revelation as well. This is comforting to us. This is comforting to us. Okay, lastly, um, God's judgment also brings spiritual fruits. At least this vision of God's judgment can bring a lot of spiritual fruits for us in the here and now. And this point I'm really, I, I'm indebted to Paul Tripp, the, the pastor and uh, counselor who, who, wrote, who wrote on this topic, and, and in, that, in his writing, he lists five things uh, that he believes uh, that we should be producing whenever we meditate on and reflect upon God's judgment and even the doctrine of hell. Okay. Five things we should not only keep in mind, but seek to cultivate in our hearts. All right. Let me give you those five things. First, number one, he says the judgment of God and the doctrine of hell should produce in us godly grief. Godly grief. Uh, for one, it should break your heart that your sins and my sins, the sins we may actually take quite casually, uh, have eternal consequences. And that we still sin every single day. That should grieve us. That should cause us to grieve over our sins. 
and, and, and begin to feel the weight of the, the consequence of sins. Second, it should grieve us even more that there are those living with us, around us, who are marching towards this God-separated state of eternal judgment without even knowing it. Okay. There are those around us who, who are headed towards this judgment without knowing the solution to it, the answer to it. If that grief isn't there, you're probably not taking heaven as seriously as you should. Right? Because heaven means you're saved from that. But if that doesn't grieve you, you're probably not experiencing the joy of heaven uh, in your day-to-day life. Does your heart grieve over those who are perishing? And that's a spiritual fruit of godly grief, the kind of grief that God has, the kind of grief that Holy Spirit produces in us. We should share that grief with God because it comes from a place of love. Uh, Number two, the doctrine of hell produces in God's people a, a zeal for the gospel of grace. Paul Tripp says, day after day you brush shoulders with people marching towards judgment and you've been sovereignly positioned by God to brush shoulders with them. Are you zealous to share the gospel with them? Are their names ever uttered in your prayers? Is there one name that you're praying for right now to come to know the gospel of grace? And as you pray for them, do you also pray for yourself, for your compassion and for your fortitude to move towards them and befriend them and build relational bridges with them so you can actually carry the gospel to them. Do pray for yourself as well. Meditate on the doctrine of hell. Cultivate zeal for the gospel of grace. Third, he says the doctrine of hell should produce in us constant thanksgiving, thankfulness. You should be thankful that when when God's final justice comes, um, it's not coming against you, but for you, for your vindication, your innocent verdict, for your reward and inheritance in his kingdom. That is your portion because the Son of Man, your Savior, the one you trust, uh, took upon himself the payment for your sins. We should never go a day without expressing our thankfulness for this. And the, the, the... the new mercies that we experience every day uh, from God. Um, that's just, that's what trickles down from the, the grace that saved us, the mercy that saved us from hell. Okay. Identify yourself as that, as I've been saved from hell, and give thanks to the Lord for that. Um, number four, related to this, the doctrine of hell should produce in you a celebration, a praise. Um, and it's not kind of this self-righteous kind of celebration, you know, proud of yourself kind of celebration at the expense of those who don't believe. You know, I, I knew better to believe. That's, that's not what this is about. It's a celebration of God's mercy. You know, our, our first membership vow is what? Do you acknowledge you are sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure, and without hope, save in His sovereign mercy? Right? That is to say, apart from God's unmerited mercy and grace, we deserve hell. That's what we deserve. And it's only by the grace of God that we become aware of our sins and rely on God's mercy and become forgiven, adopted children of God. Um, Nothing in us made us fitting or deserving of God's mercy. His mercy was sovereign. That's what that means. It's it's unilateral, right? His mercy came at us through a one-way street. 
heaven to earth. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? That's atonement uh, for our sins. That's the that's fury of God falling upon Christ on the cross, not on us. That's how you're saved. Right? Do you celebrate that? Do, do you celebrate the fact that in Christ you can actually say things like, everything will be all right and it's not a cliche? Everything will be all right. You will be all right because you're in Christ. Lastly, uh, Paul Tripp says, the doctrine of hell should produce in us a, a, a desire for prioritization or re, reprioritization. Eternity has a way of reminding us what is truly important in our lives. When you meditate enough on the reality of heaven and hell, uh, it will rearrange your value system. Tripp says, a believer who meditates enough on the doctrine of hell will invest much more time into the kingdom of God than the kingdom of self. So this causes us to recalibrate, reassess, is my life really concerned with eternity? Does the allocation of my time, my energy, my relationships, all my resources reflect such a priority? Do I value Christ and his mission over my own? Does my labor, my spending, my scheduling prove, show that I'm deeply concerned with eternity? Think of how your Savior has prioritized you. He, he suffered uh, infinitely more than any human soul can suffer. In dying the death, we should have died. In suffering the separation from God, we should have suffered. But he looked at us and he said, they're more important than my comfort. They are a priority over my convenience. They are a priority over my wealth. That ought to make you, first of all, that ought to make you feel more loved and more cherished and more valued than anything or anyone else in this world can ever love you and value and cherish you. And because that is true of you and me, we can move forward and say, let's go and live a life of, of loving and cherishing and valuing Christ. And let's show that we do through all that we do. Um, I hope sometime today you'll take a moment, perhaps with your family or friends, um, go over these five spiritual fruits that Paul Tripp um, talks about, right? As we meditate on the ju coming judgment of God and the doctrine of hell, right? Examine your heart to see whether there is godly grief, zeal for the gospel of grace, deep sense of thankfulness, a, a celebration, praise, and lastly, um, reprioritization in your life. Uh, let's, let's strive in that direction so that we, we, know, we would know, we would actually tangibly see, um, as my Savior has loved me and cherished me, so do I love and cherish Him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vision. 
Um, it's not a vision we would want to see or choose to see, but it is a vision we need. Uh, God, God, thank you for giving us not what we want, but what we need. Um, awaken us to uh, the reality of uh, uh, this world, our lives, so that we would also be awakened to the, the need we have for your hope, your comfort, uh, and your gospel. And Lord, um, bring us on your mission. Uh, if we have been indifferent and slothful in this area, Lord, um, help us to re-enter your mission field, your harvesting field, and draw out those whom you have called and chosen by name. Help us to to begin um, uh, living for eternity. Uh, Help us, uh, by your wisdom, to reprioritize our lives so that our hearts, our lives, our words, our actions will properly reflect this truth. You are worth cherishing and valuing above all. Um, Lord, lead us and help us um, as as your bride and as your church. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.